We're going to finish chapter 3 here in John's Gospel. And so if you'd turn there, uh, we'll pick up in verse 22 and finish the chapter. You know, very often, strangely enough, people will actually ask about this whole salvation thing. Why do I need to be saved? What am I being saved from? Because we assume when someone is saved, they're saved from something. If you're in water and you can't swim, you're being saved from drowning. Uh, If you fall into the bear enclosure at the zoo, you're being saved from being eaten by a bear. Uh, If you're about to step off a curb in front of a car, you're being saved from being run over. Saved to us means that there is a danger and you're saved from it. Verse 36 tells us as the body of Christ what it is we are being saved from. Because we are being saved from the wrath of God. The righteous, holy indignation that the Lord has against sin. Beginning in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve choose to sin. Mankind since that time has chosen also to follow suit and to also sin, for there is none righteous, no, not one. For all, Paul said, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As sinners, there's only one remedy for the problem and for the penalty that is coming without choosing the remedy, which is Jesus. There's only one other path, and that's God's wrath. You're saved from it by believing in his name. And we're going to celebrate that salvation so rich and so free that comes to us by grace and through faith today. And so as we pick up in verse 22 here in John 3, would you join me in prayer and we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we are so grateful for the incredible plan of salvation that is a free gift, your free gift to us, the message sent to earth, brought by none other than your own son, Jesus, that believing in him we might be saved and thereby saved from your righteous indignation, your wrath. We're, we're grateful, Lord, that the free gift of life, which is eternal, ha- has graced many of us here in this place, most of us. And so we pray that you would speak now through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we pick up, really we're, we're beginning this transitional period. And we're going to get into some of the stories and the, the things that Jesus is going to remind us of is, as his plan of salvation is worked out. But remember how this chapter 3 begins. This incredibly brilliant man, Nicodemus, asked a question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him what that is, and it's not going to church. It isn't being religious. It isn't following a bunch of traditions. He says, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And to that end, John now explains to us why he doesn't want anybody following him. Verse 22, and after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea 
which is the area surrounding Jerusalem, its barren hills. And there he remained with them and baptized. That's where we met John the Baptist, foretold there in Isaiah 40, the first four verses. And so he's remained in that region. He's baptizing, but he's now baptizing in the name of Jesus. There was John's baptism. There's now going to arise a dispute. Now John also was baptizing near Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came to be baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. John the Baptist is going to lose his life. He's going to confront Herod. And he's going to say, look, this adulterous relationship you have is not okay with God. And it's going to cost him his head. It will be delivered on a platter because Salome will ask of it. And then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And so there's a little bit of confusion going on. John the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus and his disciples are there and they are baptizing. And and so... There, there's kind of like, well, what's this all about? And the interesting thing was, is the Jews had, in essence, been baptizing as well. And in fact, when you travel to Israel, if you go there with us, one of the things that always marks a Jewish village, a Jewish town, a Jewish settlement, is the presence of exactly this thing, a mikveh, or a ritual bath. Because the Jews were very concerned about being right with the Lord. So if they came in contact with an unclean animal, they touched something that was dead, they perhaps you know, did something that needed uh, uh, cleansing, they would immediately go to wherever that mikveh was in the town, and they would ritually cleanse themselves. So you have kind of the Jewish baptism, you have John's baptism, and you have Jesus and his disciples' baptism. And so people are confused, what's this all about? And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, all are coming to him. So Jesus is baptizing, you're baptizing, and, and we as, as Jewish people are also concerned about purification, kind of a baptism. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that as I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He says, look, I I told you I'm not the reason that anybody's baptized. And he who has the the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, he's saying, look, I'm just the, the best man. I'm not the bridegroom, I'm the best man. Who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Look, the bridegroom's voice is here. The real one about whom I was baptizing in the first place, he's here and he's baptizing. And therefore this joy of thine is fulfilled. And then he says something that is really the the focus of this first little bit. He must increase and I must decrease. You see, what John the Baptist is saying is Jesus, Jesus is the focus of all ministry. Ministry is not about Calvary Chapel. Ministry is not about any kind of denomination or organization or association. Ministry is not about a particular pastor and his style of teaching. 
Ministry is not about a place that we go to. Ministry at its core and as its focus is about Jesus. That's why we're here today. We're here because Jesus Christ, God's own Son, came to this earth, died on Calvary's cross, shed his blood in our place, paid the price for our sin, has given us the right relationship with God, and has saved us from the wrath of God as we have believed on his name. Ministry is about Jesus. And so John says, rightly so, he must increase and I must decrease. In other words, John didn't want people following him. He wanted them following Jesus. That's what I want. That's what we should all want. We want people to come to have faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and be saved. And so while John's ministry overlapped Jesus's for a while, there was a tendency for people to kind of put their hope and faith and trust in John. Paul had the same experience. And so Paul writing much the same thing there in Philippians 3 and also in Galatians 2, when he writes to the church of Galatia, he goes so far as to say there in verse 20, chapter 2 there in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, he loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, it's about Jesus. Too many people make church about the pastor. Or too many people make church about the type of church it is. Look, the reason we feed homeless is to show them Jesus. The reason you can go get a Frappuccino is so that you can know Jesus. The reason there's a junior high ministry and a high school ministry is so junior hires and high schoolers can come to know Jesus. The reason I'm standing up here right now teaching the Word of God is so that you can personally know Jesus. You have to know why you're in ministry in the first place. Know who you serve. I serve the Lord. We serve the Lord. The ministry's focus is Jesus. There is no ministry apart from Jesus. You take Jesus out of the ministry, and ministry is pointless. There's no reason to do ministry except for Jesus. People say, well, you know, we, we could, you know, help change people. So we change people only to have them die eternally? Without the Savior, there's no reason for ministry. And in that sense, you must know, we must know, who we are serving. To that end, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. You see, these guys were arguing about this matter of purification. And so here you have John baptizing, and Jesus and the disciples are baptizing, and the Jews are baptizing. And they're like, man, who, whose baptism do we go to? They had lost focus. You know, they're, they're all worried about the methodology of the baptism instead about the whole reason for baptism in the first place. Baptism can't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. You're not saved because you were baptized. If you were baptized as an infant and you think that's going to save you, it can't save you. 
Jesus tells you here very clearly that you must be born again. You must believe on the only begotten Son of God to have a right relationship with the Lord. He says nothing actually about being baptized in this passage. He says seven times, believe. And so what happened with the Jewish people at this time is they're, they're arguing, they're haggling. It's the very reason that Jesus there in Matthew's gospel, they're in chapter 23, he, he says to them, he's, he's kind of talking to them, and I'll paraphrase it for you. To put it into a modern context, Jesus is talking about the, the law that the, the Jewish people are trying to keep, and he's talking about how precise it is. And so he says to them, he says, look, you guys go to your spice rack. Probably many of you have gone to Costco or Sam's Club or, you, you know, you went to Target, and, and you can buy these spice racks that have like 10, 12 jars of spices on them. Cost, I don't even know how they make it for what they sell it for. But that spice rack has all kinds of different things, maybe some cumin and probably some caraway seed. There's all kinds of stuff on there. And so the Pharisees, Jesus said, look, you guys have it wrong. You're so concerned with tithing of your mint and your cumin. You're worried about what's in the spice jars, so much so that you are choking to strain out a gnat out of your purified wine. You see, because the gnat was a living creature when it fell in the wine, and thereby it had a little tiny bit of blood in it. So you can't eat anything with blood in it. So he says you strain out a gnat, but in the process, you swallow a camel. You fail at the weightier matters of the law, which are love and mercy and justice. You see, people make church about a lot of things. It's about only that which comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. It's about the story of redemption. It's the main thing. It's the reason Jesus came in the first place, and we shouldn't be making it something else. We need to keep it the main thing. And to that end, very often what happens is you start having competition you start having comparison pretty soon ministries start well you know we're this and you're that and this is us and we're these things and you're this thing and before you know it the main thing's not the main thing it's just about comparison yesterday morning i was in belize teaching at a pastor's conference and I can tell you, if you looked at it from the outside, it does not make any sense for me to leave on Wednesday and go down and teach this group of about 150 pastors and leaders. It makes no sense. There's plenty to do here. But I can tell you what happened. These little churches who love the Lord, many of them 10, 15, 20 people, got built up because they're making Jesus the main thing to groups of people that really need the message of the cross. And so it's not about the fact that we could have housed all of their churches in our overflow room. That's a fact. 
It's about them preaching Jesus and us preaching Jesus and all of us together preaching Christ crucified alone for the remission of sin. It's about Jesus being magnified. It's not about comparing whether one church is bigger than another church or one building's nicer than another building or one group of people, you know, look like a better expression of the Lord or not. It's keeping Jesus front and center. There shouldn't be any comparison. There is one bridegroom, and his name is Jesus. Little churches love Jesus too. And I'll I'll tell you this, for me personally, I'm sitting there listening to these pastors. We, We had a communion service, much like we're going to have in a few moments. These guys are pouring out their hearts before the Lord. We asked if any of them needed prayer. We stayed for almost two and a half hours praying with the needs of the body of Christ about what Jesus is doing in their churches. Those churches matter to God. We need to make sure that we care about the right things. We don't want, (laughs) please, can I just ask of you? This church is not about me. It's not about Calvary Chapel. It's not about this beautiful facility. It's not about the staff. This church is about Jesus. Amen? Bring people here so they can meet Jesus. And hopefully we won't mess that up. Because that's what matters. What is that message? And while you think about it, and we're going to look at the last several verses here, verses 31 to 36, there are three things that we have seen thus far. And they are all what we would call musts. In other words, you must do these things. There is the must of the sinner. What did Jesus say? You must be born again. That is not a suggestion. That is something that everyone must do if you want to be okay with God, if you want to escape what could possibly await you if you don't make that choice. There's also the must that we see in verse 14, the must of the Savior. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus came to die. He had to do that. If Jesus doesn't die on Calvary's cross, then we're all still lost. And there's no reason for us to be here. If it were not for Jesus, there's no reason for us to be here. If this ever becomes a social club, if this becomes some place where we have a specific philosophy of life, if there's no Jesus and there's no plan that God had from the very beginning to redeem us back, to pay the price for our sin, then I, I purport to you there's no reason for us to be here. But there is a Savior, and He did come, and He must die, and He did die, and He did pay the price, and anyone who will believe on His name will be saved. Amen? That's why we're here. But there's a third one. And it's the one that affects us after we've been saved. And it's found in verse 30, and then we'll pick up in verse 31. 
He must increase and I must decrease. That's the must of service or servants or serving. The reason you and I have been saved is so that Jesus can increase in this world and you and I can decrease. People can simply see Jesus in us. And it is to that end that the message now comes. Notice verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is above the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. Look, the Lord came and even his own family didn't believe him initially. The message of the cross is foolishness to people who are perishing. But to we who love the Lord, it's the power of God unto salvation. People didn't believe it initially. They're not going to believe it instantaneously today. But you must be born again. And so Jesus is simply saying, look, if you receive this message, it's the message that can save you. And he tells us from what? He was received his testimony is certified that God is true. And we're going to look at this message. It's a message that came from heaven. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by message. The Spirit's in the world and anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. Anyone who wants to believe can believe. Anyone who asks will receive. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Gives the Spirit without measure. There's no qualifications. You don't have to be intelligent. You do not have to be wealthy. You do not have to clean yourself up before you get saved. You just need to believe that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for your sin and mine, and thereby, if we believe in his name, we'll be saved. For the Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand, and he who believes in the Son, notice this, does it say anything about baptism baptism there? Does it say anything about church attendance? Does it say anything about memorizing all the books of the Bible? Does it say anything about having a King James Bible? No, it says, he who has the Son has everlasting life. But notice what it also says. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. Key ingredient there is nothing more than believing in the only begotten Son of God, who we've already been told came into this world that the world through him might be saved. The whole purpose of communion, the whole purpose of the cross, the whole purpose of God's plan of sending Jesus into the world is that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come and plant a religion. He came and gave his life a ransom so that all who would believe on his name could be saved. And now we're told why. If you do not believe in the Son, you shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, the choice is believing or not believing. It's not religious or irreligious. It's not one denomination versus another denomination. It's not what you can know. It is simply the act of believing in God's own Son that came from heaven. So let's look at this message. 
And while we do, I want to invite the communion team to begin to pass out the elements of communion. You're going to receive first the bread, and then it'll be followed with the cup. If you would simply hold those elements until we have all received them, and then we'll partake together at the end. But look at the message. The message of salvation is not something mankind made up. Your Bible says it came clearly from heaven. There in verse 31, where did it come from? It came from heaven. Jesus came from heaven. It wasn't like he, you know, he was some guy that somehow got translated into a more godly person and he made up a religion. It was God incarnate in human flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen? We've already seen this. It's what happened in chapter 1. The message came actually from heaven. The second thing we see is that same message came from God himself. It's not an earthly message. Not something that mankind made up. The whole story of the Bible, every word that's in it, from Genesis to Revelation, is from God to point you to Jesus. To point you to your own hopelessness. Your own inability to solve the problem, which is you're a sinner and so am I. And we desperately need a Savior. And God, seeing that condition, sends us a message from outside of space and outside of time into our time dimension and says, here's my son. And so the third thing, notice what it is. If you were going to send an ambassador with any kind of message, you want the most qualified ambassador, amen? So if you're going to have a message that comes from heaven... You're going to have a message that comes from God, then the best one to bring that message would be God. Amen? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's own Son is also God. God incarnate in human flesh. And so the message that has come to us came from heaven from God, by God's own Son. The very ambassador of this message is Jesus Christ, God's own Son. That's why he said God sent him into the world that the world through him would be saved. He sent him with the one message, the one must, you must be born again. He didn't send any other options. There's no other roads. There's only one way. And then finally, this message is so that we might escape what is rightfully ours. Because we are sinners, because we are separated from God, because we cannot pay our own debt, the message that came from heaven, came from God, came through Jesus the Son, is that we can be saved. You see, because you and I had a debt of sin that we ourselves could not pay. You and I, the rightful penalty, the justice of God, is that he would pour out his wrath upon us. He would punish that sin. But instead, on Calvary's cross, he punished Jesus in our place. 
Jesus being nailed to Calvary's cross, being put to death, giving his own life, paid that price for us. That's why the cross is so beautiful. That's why this moment is holy. You see, this is not a tradition of the church. This is the way that Jesus said we are to remember that the message came from heaven, came from God, by Jesus his Son, that we might be saved from the wrath of God. That's why we celebrate this. It's not religious at all. It's us acknowledging, thank you, Lord, for what you did on the cross. You're going to now receive the cup. And again, I want to just ask you right now, you see, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, the gospel was just preached to you. God loves you. And he sent his own son into this world that you might be saved. He died on Calvary's cross. He lived a sinless life while he was here. And instead of you dying for your sin, instead of you being punished for your sin, Jesus was punished for you in your place. In that sense, the cross of Christ is personal to each of us here. And if you don't know the Lord, you can invite him by faith right now into your life, simply ask him to be your Lord and Savior and to forgive your sin and write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Believe. And if you already know him, let me just ask you to do something today. Is there something between you and God that's hindering your prayer life? Is there something between you and God that's keeping your productiveness to a bare minimum in the kingdom? Is there something that's staining the way people might see Jesus that's in your life that you need to deal with? There is. Let's clean that up before we partake. And so just simply give it to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I thank you that you you died so that I could be free of the the ramifications of my sin. Because here's the deal. You still deserve to die eternally. So do I. The good news is, in Christ Jesus, you won't. You'll live eternally because he died in your place. And your unrighteousness was pulled out of your account and put in his. And he paid that debt and continues to this day to pay the debt of that sin. So you have been justified, made right. And so God no longer sees your sin, sees the sacrifice of his son Jesus instead. It's called justification. The penalty that you should have paid, he paid. The righteousness that you couldn't have, he's given you as a gift.